Hi guys, this has been such a great meeting. Um, I knew it was going to be great, but it has exceeded all of my expectations. The weather's been fantastic. Um, it's just been sensational. Uh, our first big live meeting in two years. Um, we're going to wrap uh, this up this last day of the meeting with this satellite symposium. Uh, I, I hope you think that we saved the best for last. Um, this is a mature message. This is probably going to be the most clinically relevant presentation that you will hear, uh, I, I hope, because there's a lot going on in the PARP spaces. You know, we have nine FDA indications in ovarian cancer, and we're studying it in other tumors, including two randomized phase three endometrial trials. So uh, when uh, uh, and what uh, PARP inhibitors should be used for ovarian cancer, it's all about personalization, and that's what we're here to talk about. Um, I'm joined by uh, my panelists, which I will introduce in a minute. I'm here in Phoenix. I think uh, most of you know that. We have two medical schools here in Phoenix, Creighton in addition to Omaha, uh, University of Arizona in addition to Tucson. Uh, here in Phoenix, we have residencies associated with both of them. We teach those residents, uh, and I have seven colleagues uh, under the umbrella of the Virginia G. Piper Cancer Center in Honor Health. So it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm joined here by my very close friend and colleague, uh, Katie Moore. Katie, say hello and introduce yourself. Well, hello, everyone. And uh, again, welcome, uh, everyone, to the last day of SGO. It's been such a great meeting, and I'm so excited to be here uh, presenting with my colleagues today. Um, I'm Kathleen Moore. I'm the Associate Director of Clinical Research and Director of Phase One Clinical Trials at the Stevenson Cancer Center uh, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And I also serve as the Associate Director of GOG uh, partners, uh, and I'm always excited to talk about um, PARP inhibitors, which is what we're going to be focused on today in ovarian cancer. And you're the Energy Ovarian Cancer Chair. I could keep going on. You have so many wonderful titles. And I cut it off at some point. So I just <laughs> <laughs> and most of these slides are yours. So yeah. thank you for uh, contributing uh, not only to the verbal content, but the slide content. Uh, one of my con uh, uh, colleagues in U.S. oncology is uh, Jessica Thomas Pepin uh, from Minnesota. Say hello, Jess. Oh, well, thanks. I'm a gynecologic oncologist uh, in uh, Minnesota here. I operate out of one of the suburbs, Maplewood. Um, I've, um, I'm so honored to be here in the presence of such wonderful individuals who contribute so much to the care of women with ovarian cancer. Um, I'm very excited. Thanks for allowing me to come. So we're going to have sort of three brief discussions. Um, uh, one by each of us and then some questions and answers and be done uh, in an hour or sooner. Um, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and turn it over uh, to you, Jess. I'm excited to hear what you have to say about essentials for understanding PARP inhibition and expert tactics for genomic testing in ovarian cancer. Go ahead, take it away. Awesome. Thank you so much. So, you know, understanding how PARP inhibitors work really leads us to really understand a lot more about uh, DNA damage and response pathways. We know DNA damage occurs via exogenous or endogenous uh, mechanisms, and it's, it's very important for us to, to have uh, accurate and efficient repair of our DNA damage. It's essential for function, replication, and maintaining uh, genomic stability. Majority of DNA damage that we see is going to be in the form of single stranded breaks. 
those are primarily um, uh, operated, operated upon by uh, the proteins that you see here, particularly including PARP via base excision repair. We also uh, we'll see double-stranded breaks via the accumulation of multiple single-stranded breaks, um, which tends to be the most uh, cytotoxic lesion. And uh, repair of these double-stranded uh, DNA breaks occurs via two primary pathways, as you can see here, highlighted in red. Homologous recombination repair is the primary pathway that we want to see utilized. We can also see repair via non-homologous end joining. These two pathways are independent, but they do share some proteins and signaling. Um, so why are why is why is PARP an excellent therapeutic target? Um, and that leads us to head back to understanding a little, little bit more about double-stranded break repair. Um, this occurs via these two pathways, and the primary um, Herculean type pathway that we see is this homologous recombination repair. Um, it utilizes sister chromatids, as you can see here. It's it's high fidelity, error free. Um, and this pathway is highly dependent on BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Um, BRCA1 um, uh, is um, important in signaling um, the DNA damage repair pathways. BRCA2 uh, has a direct repair role in that it recruits RAD51. Um, but we also see at the bottom here, um, sneakily, PARP actually contributes to and fine-tunes homologous recombination. Um, it also has a tendency to inhibit non-homologous end joining because non-homologous end joining pathway is actually a low fidelity error prone uh, uh, mechanism of DNA repair. So this can lead ultimately to genetic instability um, and accumulation of further DNA damage. Um, the inhibition of PARP then leads to an increase in non-homologous end joining and pushing in that direction as a primary repair mechanism. So knowing that we can, you know, that inhibition of PARP leads to an increase in DNA damage accumulation, uh, we're ultimately going to see in certain situations um, increased cell death. So PARP inhibition, um, as you see here, kind of really exploits or, or gets into that baseline vulnerability of cells who have inherent DNA repair deficiency. PARP inhibition, as you can see on the last left, traps that PARP on those single-stranded breaks uh, that ultimately the accumulation of more and more single-stranded breaks will lead to double-stranded breaks. And in a normal cell, that's perfectly fine when you have the homologous recombination pathway um, that will ultimately lead to cell survival as long as you can rely on that. But when you have lack of that homologous recombination pathway that will ultimately lead to DNA damage, uh, accumulation and ultimately cell death. So this is just a further explanation of, of that exact pathway and what it's getting at as what PARP inhibitors do and the mechanism that has been reported that we all know is the synthetic lethality. So those single-stranded breaks um, particularly accumulate with PARP inhibition because we're impairing base excision repair. Uh, the accumulation of double-stranded breaks and, and ultimately replication for fork collapse um, will ultimately lead to cell death in those patients who are, have homologous recombination deficiency. Um, additional mechanisms that can lead to cell death um, are via PARP trapping, um, non activation of that non-homologous end joining uh, pathway, and then you get impairment of BARD1 with BRCA. 
Um, tumor selective death or synthetic lethality uh, uh, is ultimately what's occurring and that, that was our goal um, or is our goal in ovarian cancer cells. So here you see the therapeutic index in patients who have homologous, um, uh, uh, sorry, homozygous loss of both BRCA alleles. Um, a particular sensitivity and dependency on PARP um, uh, for those patients who have that uh, homozygous loss, they have particular sensitivity to the PARP to PARP inhibitors. Now, BRCA one and two, both germline and somatic, um, are the most common mutations alterations in um, patients who have homologous recombination deficiency. And we know that up to 50% of patients with high-grade serous ovarian cancer can have homologous recombination deficiency. However, there are other um, genes that can contribute, but knowing that such, a, such an, uh, a, a large volume of patients may have some form of homologous recombination deficiency leads us to, to, to know or, or you know, want to know that, that status so that we can provide those patients with, with education and also make sure that we're providing them with the best care possible through targeted, targeted therapy. So on the next slide here, you can actually see as you read from the bottom of the slide up, you have BRCA1 and 2 mutations that, that are your gold standard for um, deficiency of homologous recombination. As you look up, you know, from there, not just baseline BRCA1 and 2 mutations, you can also have essentially a phenotype of BRCA mutations. This can either be epigenetic changes, post-translational changes, mutation expression changes, uh, via, via different mechanisms. And then going up from there in the, the blood loss red in the middle, HRDNESS, um, you can have different deleterious variants, post-translational losses, in D, uh, DNA damage repair genes that are non-BRCA1 or 2, or even non-DNA damage repair genes that can lead to an HRDNESS, um, primarily through the mechanism of loss of homologous recombination repair efficiency. This leads to increased genomic instability and reliance on error-prone DNA damage repair. And lastly, a more global effect can be seen in, in uh, cancer cells who just demonstrate a PARPness. And that can be through even further different deleterious uh, changes, expression alterations, um, and even, even depletion of some metabolites. So how do we identify those patients who would who would demonstrate homologous recombination deficiency. Well, right now we have two um, uh, testing strategies, either the Myriad My Choice, um, which gives us a gen genomic instability score, um, which is characterized by the combination of loss of heterozygosity, telomeric allelic um, imbalance, large-scale state, uh, state transitions, and you see that uh, for patients who are deemed as homologous recombination deficient, their genomic instability score is at or greater than 42 or have a baseline uh, BRCA mutation. Um, foundation one can give us a, a loss of hydrozygosity score and can also identify different patients who may uh, have uh, be characterized by homologous recombination deficiency. 
So this is an excellent timeline that gives us, um, you know, an idea of different approvals that we've seen through the FDA over the years. Um, after we've seen some outstanding um, uh, founding studies really characterize which, which PARP inhibitors can be utilized in patients um, with high-grade serous ovarian cancer who may, who may derive some benefit. Um, back to 2014, and we've seen approval via solo studies, aerial studies, NOVA, Quadra, Prima, and Paola, lastly, which we're actually now seeing combinations of PARP inhibitors with other, other drugs, um, which can be used together. So the um, FDA approval slide here is a little bit busy, um, but it, it's excellent to have as an, in your toolbox. You can utilize this at any time. And just important to note is that, you know, particularly for um, niraparib here, you have dosing for each one of the PARP inhibitors, but niraparib has that different dosing strategy depending on patient weight and platelet count. And that's actually at the, at the bottom of the slide on the right. Um, this has all the approval dates and uh, this is the particular slide that I would print and put right above my desk in the office. So it's excellent, um, but yeah. So this gives us a little bit of a, an idea about baseline knowledge for why PARP inhibitors will actually be efficacious in ovarian cancer. Well, that's really great. Um, wow, you know, it's all about biology, I think. You know, the reason that we've been able to be so impactful for our patients is through hard work in the lab, and I applaud those individuals. And then ultimately, as we talked about with you and others enrolling to clinical trials. So let's, let's now unpack the clinical data um, I would uh, not identify anyone in the world that's more knowledgeable about this topic than uh, uh, Dr. Moore. So Katie, go ahead and take it away. Good seeing you. Thanks for joining us today. Nice seeing you as well. And thank you for having me. And mainly we're going to start off talking about really the most important indication. This is the place where we have the biggest impact and hopefully uh, the opportunity to cure a higher fraction of patients with this disease. Uh, and these are the three studies that, that may set that new standard, SOLA1, PRIMA, uh, and PAOLA1. So we'll talk a little bit briefly about each of these. I'm going to start with uh, my personal favorite, although I am a little bit biased, uh, talking about SOLA1. And just to remind you all, SOLA1 uh, seems like a relatively recent study because we keep hearing uh, great updates from this trial, but it actually was developed in 2012 and accrued between 2013 and 14. So it was quite a bit ago when you think about clinical trial design. And just to remind you, because it was so long ago, this enrolled women um, exclusively with BRCA-associated cancers who were in response to their um, primary platinum-based chemotherapy and then were randomized two to one to receive olaparib or placebo um, until toxicity or progression or the two-year mark. Uh, at which point the assigned therapy was discontinued and the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. So this was first presented when we had 41 months of follow-up. I'm showing you here the updated uh, follow-up presented by uh, Dr. Susanna Banerjee. And this manuscript actually was just published for those of you who are interested in Lancet Oncology, showing up uh, a median of 60 months of follow-up. And the important things to note here are really twofold. One, at the 60-month mark, almost half of the women who were allocated to receive up to two years of olaparib remain without progression or recurrence, which is pretty phenomenal. We're still following and we have several more years to call overall survival, but at 60 months, 50, almost 
or without evidence of recurrence is compared to only 21% of the women allocated to placebo. The second point I like to make is back up uh, to the left a little bit and look at the 24 month mark. This is where the assigned therapy stopped. And for those of you, and I like uh, bevacizumab, don't get me wrong, I use it all the time. But when we stop bevacizumab, you see those two curves come back together. We call it the banana sign. Um, here we don't. So when the treatment is stopped at two years, the curves completely remain apart. And, and so that gives you some, and, and we can discuss this a little bit later, some comfort in stopping at two years. You don't need to sort of bend the rules and treat longer for patients who meet these clinical characteristics uh, in SOLA1. So this was really unprecedented improvement and a 70% reduction in the hazard of progression or death with use of a laparib following response to platinum-based chemo. But the next question really was, well, that's great. What's well, better than great? Um, but it only applies to those patients with BRC-associated cancers. What about everybody else? And so this is where the next two studies and, and, and really um, prominently the PRIMA study come into play. So PRIMA asked the question, well, what's the benefit of maintenance neuraparib in everyone? And so it had two co-primary endpoints. First, the progression-free survival in the entire population. So all high-grade serous or high-grade um, endometroid uh, 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 histologies were allowed. Similar, they had to have advanced disease and be in response to platinum-based therapy and were randomized to up to three years of neuraparib or um, placebo. Uh, and so the endpoints were looking at the entire population. And then the second co-primary endpoint was looking at the progression-free survival in those patients who were deemed homologous recombination deficient by the myriad assay, a score 42 or greater, inclusive of anyone that had a BRCA-associated cancer. So they were all classified as HRD. So those were your two primary endpoints. And so what you can see here on the left is the benefit in the homologous recombination deficient population with a 57% reduction in the hazard of um, progression or death. So that is phenomenal. And then even in the primary, all the ITT group, it's still a 38% reduction in the hazard of progression or death. So both of these primary endpoints were highly statistically and clinically significant and led to the approval of neuraparib following response to frontline platinum-based chemotherapy, irrespective of biomarker. Now, one of the things that happened during PRIMA is that we learned from NOVA, which was, we'll talk about in a moment, but that was the study from uh, platinum-sensitive recurrence disease and Quadra and others, that there were risk factors um, uh, that would help us identify patients who um, were at risk for developing severe thrombocytopenia with uh, the starting dose of 300 milligrams of neuraparb. And you heard that um, already referred to uh, earlier in this session being uh, weight less than 75 kilograms or starting platelets less than 150,000. So either one of those two, not both, place patients at high risk for grade three or four thrombocytopenia. And so during PRIMA, and this was actually a bold and appropriate move, two thirds of the patients had been accrued, but they made an amendment to go to individualized starting doses. So if you had a patient with either of those two criteria, you started at 200. If they had neither of those criteria, they started at 300. And what this table shows you is the impact, uh, not only on um, toxicity, but the lack of impact on efficacy. 
So we'll start with the second. You can see the hazard ratio for progression-free survival between fixed dosing, 300 milligrams, or the individualized starting dose, those confidence intervals completely overlap. So these are not statistically different, and we do not feel that there is an efficacy endpoint or impact of using an individualized starting dose. So that's important. Even more important is that we saw over a 60% reduction in severe thrombocytopenia, it went from 48.3% to 21% with individualized starting doses, and you saw subsequent reduction in other hematologic toxicities uh, as well, really um, making this a much safer uh, PARP inhibitor to use with individualized starting doses while maintaining uh, efficacy. And then the third study that uh, resulted was Paola. And Paola is a really interesting study because it was an investigator-initiated trial um, by, led by Isabel Ray-Ficard uh, from France. So those of you who like to do IITs, you know, you can strive to have a registration enabling study. It's not the huge, but we did see it here. And really this was designed because in many parts of, of Europe and many countries, the only place you can use bevacizumab is in frontline with frontline chemotherapy. You can't use it like we do here in the US basically whenever we want to, you can only use it in frontline. So they said, well, we're not gonna give up on using bevacizumab, we wanna add Olaparib to it. And of course, there's scientific rationale, as we all know, for the combination as well. But they basically said, okay, anyone uh, with a high-grade epithelial, again, high-grade serous or endometrioid, uh, ovarian cancer, who's in response to platinum-based chemotherapy, inclusive of some bevacizumab, would then be randomized to continue the bevacizumab with placebo for Olaparib or the combination. Uh, and the primary endpoint was all comers, which was wildly positive, but I'm showing you the breakdown by biomarker because that is how the indication came down in the US. You can see on the left, this is the BRCA population with a hazard ratio of 0.33, so almost a 70% reduction in the hazard of progression or death with Olaparib bevacizumab versus bevacizumab. So an active control, not placebo here. In the middle, you see this group of patients who's increasingly uh, important you know, in terms of our understanding of BRCA wild type HRD. Again, PARP bevacizumab versus bevacizumab hazard ratio 0.43, so almost a 60% reduction in the hazard of progression with addition of olaparib to bevacizumab versus bevacizumab. And then somewhat surprisingly, although we can talk about why I think this is different than Prima, in the homologous recombination proficient group, we did not see an improvement when you added olaparib to bevacizumab versus bevacizumab. And this is why in the US, the indication for the combination is in homologous recombination deficient inclusive of BRCA alone uh, and not um, homologous recombination proficient. So your only indication for PARP there uh, is niraparib. So just to give you sort of an overview of safety, I think we all know this, there are class effects to PARP inhibitors. They're very similar, but they have some subtle differences um, with a high preponderance of low-grade fatigue, um, uh, uh, nausea, uh, and emesis, all of which can be mitigated with setting patient expectations um, and, um, and uh, medications as indicated for whatever the toxicity is. When you talk about grade three or four toxicities, which is what I'm showing you here, really anemia is about a quarter of the time. It varies across the PARP inhibitors, but that's sort of my rule of thumb, uh, grade three or four. And then of those, about two thirds will end up needing um, a transfusion. 
It's always good to check iron and folate before you start someone on a PARP inhibitor so that you can replace those nutritional deficiencies and mitigate some of this toxicity. But otherwise you see very, very low rates of grade three or four non-hematologic toxicities across the board and very low discontinuation of drug due to toxicity, which really speaks to the tolerability of any of these regimens uh, for our patients. Now, this is just a nice decision-making algorithm that you can see that shows how complex it is to really make decisions in the front line for patients um, in this era. We, I always say when I was a fellow, which is increasingly long ago, you tried to operate on everyone and you give everyone paclitaxel and carboplatin. And that's about as much as you thought about it. And now there's a lot of individualization of timing of surgery. Everyone should be getting BRCA testing or offered BRCA testing and other high penetrance genes. HRD comes into play. You make a decision about bevacizumab based on your kind of personal uh, interpretation of the data. And then once you have all of that factored in, plus clinical response to the platinum-based chemotherapy, if someone started with uh, measurable disease, you end up with at the bottom of this algorithm where if you did not start bevacizumab and you have a patient who is homologous recombination proficient, your option in the setting of response to platinum is niraparib. Uh, if somebody is homologous recombination deficient, uh, inclusive of BRCA, you can use uh, either um, niraparib or olaparib in the setting of BRCA. If you did start bevacizumab and you have a homologous recombination proficient tumor, your option really is to continue the bevacizumab and that is appropriate. And then if they are um, homologous recombination deficient, inclusive of BRCA, your option there uh, is to continue the bevacizumab and layer on um, olaparib. And there's all sorts of nuances to this um, that we can discuss. So that's frontline. Um, now, the whole idea of maintenance came from the platinum sensitive recurrent setting. And this is in fact where all of the PARP inhibitors got their first big confirmed approvals with Solo2, Nova, and Ariel amongst patients who had platinum sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer responded to their platinum. So that response to platinum is the key clinical biomarker for, the, for anybody that's gonna benefit from a PARP, um, which is why as you'll see, the biomarker was important but not essential. And then they were all randomized to PARP or placebo. And all of these studies were positive, as you can see here, with gradations by biomarker, of course, with BRCA getting the most benefit and homologous recombination proficient the least, but no one had no benefit, which is why all of these agents were approved irrespective of biomarker, molecular biomarker, because the clinical biomarker of response is so powerful. However, all of these studies were done in BRCA or in a PARP naive tumors. And so the question now is if it's even relevant and we'll come back to that point. We do have some uh, kind of newer studies coming out. This is um, at this year's SGO in 2022 by Dr. LaRue. This is the opinion study, which is just looking at monotherapy olaparib in non-BRCA uh, tumors. Uh, so remember, olaparib is only approved as monotherapy in BRCA-associated cancers. And in, uh, if it's HRD, BRCA wild type, it has to be with bevacizumab. This is really trying to build the um, kind of obvious story for use of olaparib um, monotherapy in different biomarker groups. And this just adds to that, um, that database, just showing the efficacy across the molecular biomarkers. And similarly, we have the um, phase three randomized study, MONOOLA1, 
which will also be presented or is was presented at this meeting, I should say, um, by Savitz et al. Uh, kind of a similar study in BRCA wild type patients, Olapra versus placebo um, with clear benefit. Now, the other thing just to say, because these studies were done before the frontline is we actually have overall survival data from Solo2 and Nova, neither of which were powered for overall survival. So we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of crossover and these are all nominal p-values, but you, I think at the very least we can say there's no detriment to use of PARP inhibitor in this setting. And numerically for Olaparib, it was about a 12 month gain and Nova was about a seven month gain nominal p-value, can't say anything statistical about it other than we didn't harm people, which is always important to say. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, treatment-related myeloid neoplasms with use of PARP inhibitors uh, and really with use of repetitive chemotherapy, because this really isn't specific to PARP inhibitors. It's become uh, front and center because PARP inhibitors work so well and patients live a long time when you live a long time and get a lot of chemotherapy, you are at risk for treatment-related myeloid neoplasms, which we sort of classify as MDS uh, AML. And so we're collecting this data over time and really starting to understand the true risk over time and with exposures to many types of therapies, inclusive of PARP inhibitors, and maybe even start to understand molecularly who's at risk for developing these disorders, um, their chip mutations, uh, and other abnormalities that may help us tease that out, but nothing to date. But I think the take home really is that the risk, especially when it's used in the front line, is very low. Uh, you know, one to two percent, mainly because I think the patients do so well that they're not going on to receive as many lines of chemotherapy. We'll follow them over time. Um, and we have to remain vigilant uh, for hematologic abnormalities that don't resolve in an appropriate period of time and early referral to our hematology colleagues if there's any concern. So this is an ongoing story, relatively low risk, but definitely on the radar uh, for um, things to watch for as our frontline studies mature. Now, I mentioned earlier several times, in fact, that the studies of PARP inhibitor in the platinum sensitive and kind of quasi-platinum sensitive when we're talking about aerial four space are important, very important, but kind of of questionable relevance because they were all done in PARP naive populations. And so appropriately and kind of um, anticipating that issue, the Oreo study was designed now many years ago to study this question. And basically what this study was is a randomized phase three trial that um, took patients, women who had had uh, prior PARP inhibitor, um, one course, uh, and then had recurred and were felt to be platinum sensitive, received a platinum and responded to that platinum. And then they could come on the study uh, and receive, be randomized to Olaparib or placebo. And they kind of made up, uh, appropriately, someone had to make it up, some uh, classifications for prior response or prior benefit from PARP. So if you had a BRCA-associated cancer, you had to have been on the PARP at least 18 months for first line or 12 months in the platinum-sensitive space. And if you were BRCA wild type, it was 12 and six months, respectively, just so you enrolled folks that had some hope of benefiting and excluded patients who maybe progressed three months into a PARP. So that's rational. And the endpoint uh, was progression-free survival. And this was presented recently. It's not been published yet. Um, but this was 
a kind of positive negative study. It's very interesting. Uh, the hazard ratios are phenomenal, 0.43 and 0.57 in um, non-BRCA and BRCA respectively, which sounds, you might think, well, gosh, I would have thought the BRCA cohort would have done better. But just like in the platinum sensitive story, response to platinum is probably your most important biomarker in this space for response to subsequent PARP. And very germane to this patient population, almost half of them were, had received four prior platinums. So this is an amazing population of women that we really need to understand better. It's not first or second line platinum, four lines. And they were still responded again. And then some fraction of them got a benefit. And so I think this is a positive study. Do I think it is the new standard of care that you must use? No. Is it an option and do you have permission to use it now? Yes. I really want to know who the women are in the tail of these two curves, molecularly, clinically, uh, so we can better understand who will benefit because clearly 20 to 30% of them benefit very much. Uh, and the rest we need to move on to newer assets you're going to hear about from Dr. Monk um, that work irrespective of prior exposure uh, to PARP inhibitors. So this is an important first study that raises probably more questions than it answers, but uh, it was a needed first step. So to end off, just um, again, thank you for having me. I think that in the front, the front line is where we should be using PARP inhibitors. That is very, very clear. This is not something you want to sequence or wait. You use your best drugs in the front line. So PARP inhibitors with and without bevacizumab in the maintenance setting has been transformative um, in uh, certainly in BRCA associated cancers, but I would also argue in BRCA wild type HRD. These are transformative hazard ratios. And we really can't be dismissive of the homologous recombination proficient group as defined by PRIMA, a very high risk clinical group of tumors who responded beautifully to platinum. And they did get a benefit, a 32% reduction in the hazard of progression or death is clinically relevant. So the clinical biomarker that is very prevalent in PRIMA uh, kind of overcomes the molecular biomarker of homologous combination proficiency. And so it is something to consider there, um, although it's an area of clinical equipoise, uh, I acknowledge. And then I think the Oreo data gives us some data on the reutilization of PARP inhibitors. It really tells us we need to keep developing new and better agents, which you're going to hear about next, uh, so that we can keep helping women incrementally live long, high-quality um, lives. However, there is a population who benefits, and I want to know who they are so I can sequence this in appropriately, and hopefully um, more data will come out on that as, as patients are followed longer and molecularly characterized. Um, but with that, I'm going to turn it over to my good friend, Dr. Monk, who will take us home. Thank you. Katie, that was great. Um, every time I listen to you, I learn, you know, four or five new things. So that was really good. And, uh, you know, this field has evolved since the accelerated approval of a RAP, LAPRIB in December of 2014. And it will continue to evolve. And that's really what I'd like to talk about now sort of the new approaches into combinations and novel therapies. So um, the first thing I'd like to focus on is these upfront trials that all of you know about. In fact, almost all of you probably enrolled to them. There are these four, uh, Keylink, uh, which is GUG3036, which is Pembrolaprib, first, which is Nirapirib, Dostarlamab, Duo-O, a Dervalumab and a Laprib is, you know, Laprib is shared between those two uh, first and third uh, rows. And then Athena, which is pure maintenance 
nivolumab and recaparib. And these studies are all complete enrollment. We'll see what they show. Uh, some of them uh, require bevacizumab and some don't. And as I said, Athena is a pure maintenance. So we'll see what that shows. Uh, also Athena Mono, which is a similar design to Prima, uh, should report out before the Athena Mono, which is the nivolumab combination. And then there's some of these phase twos that you see there, looking at novel combinations to inform what we're doing in frontline. Um, I just want to sort of highlight a couple of these frontline, very large studies, Keylink or GOG3036 or OV43. Um, this is a big deal. And as you know that this combination of uh, 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 Pembro in triple negative breast is approved, um, and, and maybe PARP will make it better. And there's a lot of preclinical data from Tapasio, uh, Avanova, uh, uh, that would sort of inform this. So we're, the studies are done and we're going to know, and we got four shots on goal and the subtleties, not only in the use of bevacizumab, not only in the integration of with chemotherapy and pure maintenance, but also in the biomarkers. So I think we're going to have a number of shots on goal and we should know relatively soon. And this is Athena, uh, again, two components, Athena mono, which is placebo plus recap versus recaparib. Uh, in all comers, again, very similar to Prima, but with a different PARP inhibitor, and then separate study where multiple comparisons are compa uh, controlled for with recaprib versus recaprib nivolumab. So the next wave is really in recurrent ovarian cancer. Uh, this idea that genomic stress, very nicely done, Jess, causes uh, double-stranded and, and, and single-stranded breaks and is mitigated by PARP, but other enzymes, particularly uh, other uh, DNA damage response genes such as P53, we won ATR, AKT, um, and um, uh, very novel. And so as you traffic through these studies, which I'm not gonna review uh, in great detail, notice that some of them are alone, such as we won, which I'll show you a little bit, some are in combination, also we want ATR. Some are with chemotherapy, AKT and weekly paclitaxel, Profecta, another GOG study. And then some are big randomized phase three trials like EPIC-O, which is a PI3K. So we're trying to overcome PARP resistance and we're trying to make PARP sensitive patients even more sensitive. And, and, and that's active uh, field of design. And, and I can't really get into it here. I just want to do some highlights, but I want to spend a few minutes on tumor treating fields, a few minutes on antibody drug conjugates. And again, I don't have time to talk about gene therapy either. As you know, uh, Ophrogene, uh, Obadavovec, uh, or Ophrogene, that's what we should call it. Uh, VB111, that study, uh, Oval is also completed enrollment. So I'm not going to talk about gene therapy either. But your hard work is leading to discovery and many of these trials have completed enrollment and should report within the year. So you saw Shannon Weston's very nice study effort, which showed in PARP exposed patients, both single agent adavocertib and the combination was active. A big deal, double DNA damage response medications, which overcame either acquired or primary PARP resistance. And you'll see 
ZN03, another uh, study within the GOG that we're working on this pathway, and obviously adavosertib goes through, uh, is going forward. So ZN3 is another V1 inhibitor. And you got ATR and AKT and PI3K, some in single agents, some as combinations. I just wanted to show you this one slide because I liked it a lot. This idea of an ATR inhibitor, seralocertib uh, uh, with a laparib, very small cohort that showed a 45% response rate again in PARP exposed patients, which is uh, Dr. Moore Katie said is almost everyone these days. And then uh, devices um, published this week, if you didn't see it, thoracic mesothelioma with tumor treating fields, two positive phase three trials in glioblastoma multiforme. Uh, this idea that living cells can be impacted by these uh, alternating electrical fields that interfere with mitotic uh, activity and can be added to chemotherapy generally or as a single agent, GBM, and show therapeutic benefits. So very novel, um, but it works in historically chemotherapy-resistant tumors, thoracic mesothelioma and glioblastoma multiforme. So uh, this is uh, very uh, uh, well thought out, uh, uh, both frequency dependent tutor, tumor treating field inhibition as well in, as intensity dependent tumor treating field inhibition. These are in vitro data. We needed to do a preliminary, I say we, I mean, uh, Professor Vergote and his colleagues in Belgium showed that this could be tolerable. Uh, strap on to the abdomen where these arrays, where a battery pack uh, keep it on for about 18 hours a day, again, with weekly paclitaxel versus weekly paclitaxel, and see what it shows. So this is the phase two study, small cohort published in uh, our journal, but ultimately a phase three trial, again, which you and I enrolled to, 540 patients. And again, it's done. It's done. So we've worked hard within the European network, within the GOG, uh, domestically and internationally to do a lot of a number of pivotal trials, some of which are finished uh, and, and we're very excited. So we'll see what this shows. Platinum resistant recurrent ovarian cancer, weekly paclitaxel versus weekly paclitaxel tumor treating fields with a survival endpoint. Stay tuned. And, and I, I get it, we live in an antibody drug conjugate world. You saw what we did with tezotimab vedotin in cervical cancer. Uh, we're, that was the first one approved. We're here to talk about ovarian Katie, you've worked very hard on mervituximab, sorbentancine, uh, an antibody drug conjugate against folate receptor alpha. Very nice study published in Annals of Oncology, Forward One. Uh, very nice study uh, published by Dr. O'Malley to add it to bevacizumab. And then ultimately you saw presented at this meeting, Soraya, in Bev treated beyond PARP if you were BRCA, 32%. Winded independent central review with a long duration and some complete responders likely will lead to an accelerated approval with the uh, confirmatory trial being another uh, study, Katie, that you're leading, another GOG study uh, called Mirasol. There's a nice uh, trial in progress abstract here. You see it, abstract 297. And then Angela Sucord and others are running this platinum sensitive single arm study called Picola. So we did forward one, close, needed to refine the biomarker. We did Soraya with the new biomarker, bingo, presented at this meeting. 
and then we have the confirmatory trial for international approval, and now ultimately bevacizumab as a combination, O'Malley, and now this platinum-sensitive opportunity. So this is a very extensive development plan. Uh, there are other antibody drug conjugates. This is a different target, um, NAPI-2B, uh, UPRI, Upifidumab Rilosadotin, I did better with that name, um, and uh, has a higher drug-to-antibody ratio. This does not have the level of neurotoxicity that Mervituximab would have, does not have the level of ophthalmologic toxicity. Again, I don't mean to make comparisons, but this is a, a different mechanism uh, and a different antibody drug, drug conjugate, again, being explored in platinum-resistant recurrent ovarian cancer. Debbie Richardson had that nice oral, which you saw, uh, and I sort of presented some more data in abstract 319 about dose optimization. So these patients are on treatment for a long time, and you can see that from the 43 milligram group to the 36 milligram group, there is more tolerability without a decrement or a drop-off in activity, and specifically a reduction in the pneumonitis. So moving forward, many of the studies are going to use this 36 dose rather than the 43. So let's go ahead and have some questions. I have a number of them here. We have uh, plenty of time. Uh, Katie, it struck me when you said in Solo One that there was no additional benefit um, beyond two years, and I would support that. Jess, you know, it, it, it looks like much of the benefit is actually in, in the first year. Is there any rationale to do a shorter than two year, let's say in a solo one population, or do you think we have to do two years? And I know it's unknown, but how do you do this in the clinic? I would say, I would not want anyone to leave thinking that it's okay to use a shorter course. Okay. Uh, I don't think there's any data to justify that. And I think two years and, and stopping at two years in absence of disease that you can see, you know, there are patients who do continue on, right. uh, is okay. But I go to two years and in the prima, I think the hard thing is in the prima population, you can go to three years. And so you have to kind of make that shift for patients who are BRCA, right. you, know, you go two to three years. But the you, you ask a good question. I don't know how we'll ever study it, but if you look at the, it's just a back of the napkin sort of analysis, you look at the slope of the curves and the PARP arm and the experimental arm and the control arm. And when they become equal at that point or a little beyond is sort of where that means the event rates have sort of equalized. Right. And you have to wonder if you're getting any benefit from That's the whatever year. your experiment is. Yeah. And that happens about 18 months. 18 in months. Okay. For solo. It's like 16 months in prima, although you don't have enough follow-up yet. So I think we have to redo that when there's more follow-up on, on prima and Paula, it's a little unfair to do it at this point. Um, so, so I definitely don't think there's rationale for going beyond two years in a solo like population, which is very different than Prima, but I would not use shorter. Okay. That's helpful. So Jess, I'm going to ask you this question because, uh, Katie already said she has a, a preference. So in the, in the BRCA mutated patient, you can either give Prima, assuming there's no BEV or you can use a lap rib solo one. How do you make that decision? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously understanding their HRD status, you know, may, may just is an easy clinical method of, of choosing one versus the other. 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, side effect uh, profile and, and knowing that you get that higher rate of thrombocytopenia with norepirib, um, uh, you know, both are very tolerable. Um, I, you know, elaparib um, uh, has so many more indications. I think we have a lot more um, uh, experience with it. And I think yep. a lot of us um, may tend to um, go in that direction. But, um, you know, a lot of the data coming out for norepirib is also is also exciting. But um, I think you, you know, you, you want to get as much data about your patients as possible, know their status, um, but also look at them individually, their, their, their personal makeup, um, and also think about those toxicities for each patient. And they are a little bit different for each of those drugs. Does the once daily with norepirib make it easy? Because when I use it, you know, I use it at night with a small meal and sometimes a sedating antiemetic. Does that have leverage or traction with you or not really? I think that would be reasonable for certain patients. I absolutely, yep, I've utilized that. Similarly, um, I think that's very reasonable. And also having a good extensive conversation with your patients about yeah. their preferences with taking oral oral medications and how they're tolerating everything. Mm -hmm. So let me get to that with Katie. So Katie, you and I are very passionate about all of us, PARP inhibitors and BRCA and even HRD. I mean, it's really important, but you have to sort of, counsel the patient about the side effects but if you if you are too strong as the side effects you know every patient thinks they're cured and so how do you balance this e efficacy enthusiasm with a fair and balanced assessment of adverse reactions i'm really interested in this answer katie well i think it's as you say you know you you kind of and i showed that algorithm yeah. So you have a patient who presents, generally they don't feel good. They're so overwhelmed. They've been given this diagnosis. So you kind of have to get them rolling and feeling better, get their molecular status back, see how they're responding. And then I initiate that conversation about maintenance, you know, if I haven't started bevacizumab um, around cycle three. And honestly, I'm pretty straightforward with patients about the known outcomes for advanced ovarian cancer. I, I say, you know, we're going to be special friends for many, many years, <laughs> but the likelihood that this comes back is, you know, over 80% yeah. and it may be a hundred percent. And so my job is to try and do everything I can up front to prevent that or keep it at bay as for long as possible. And so we have the strategy of a maintenance therapy after. So I start planting those seeds pretty early, nice. but I don't really get into the nitty gritty of the counseling until I'm kind of close to the end. Uh, and then it's several detailed conversations um, to really set expectations. The first six to eight weeks, uh, they don't feel good generally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to just tell them that because they expect to feel good coming off chemo. They're done with chemo. Thank goodness. And then I'm like, well, six weeks, you're going to feel kind of crappy, but then it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I sort of set them up that way. And then they're like, oh, it wasn't as bad as you thought you said, <laughs> but, um, but I really try to set them up. and then. Um, and then when they feel better, they, they cruise. So and and the worst toxicity is dying of, of recurrent ovarian cancer, obviously. So, um, right. I, I hear you. Um, so Jess, you know, the decision to use bevacizumab is made generally before the decision to use a PARP inhibitor. And if you don't use bevacizumab, you're never going to get to PALA one, right? I mean, I guess you could start the bevacizumab in maintenance, but as all of us know, you know, generally it started with chemotherapy. How, how do you make that decision to use bevacizumab with the ultimate idea that if they're HRD, you're going to get Paola 
Uh, if they're not, you're just going to continue the Bev. But that decision to use Bevacizumab is, is critical. And I find people um, uh, still evolving that decision, even though Bevacizumab was approved in Je June of 2018. Tell us how you make that decision. I think, you know, you look at, at the volume of your disease, the different characteristics about ascites, you know, what are you seeing for each particular patient? And honestly, with, you know, while we see some of those banana curves for bevacizumab, we've, we've also seen data that has shown that, you know, getting, getting bevacizumab overall has substantial benefit for these patients. And I really want to get that to those patients who have that substantial tumor burden or yeah. profound ascites. I want to help them feel better. Um, and I know that that's, it's an outstanding adjunct and, and that can help us bridge, you know, perhaps, you know, it can help us bridge into the payola patients who are HRD positive. Um, but really, yeah, looking at that disease volume up front um, is, is the primary. Good point. This is a tough question for you, Katie. So I'm going to ask it to you. Um, and I'm glad that I'm not on the other, that the, the roles are not reversed. Uh, does PARP inhibitor induce platinum resistance? In other words, if you were to look at Nova, Aerial 3, or um, uh, Study 19, Solo 2, does the, if you got PARP, are you less platinum sensitive in the next line of therapy than if you get the placebo? And if, if that's true, maybe you don't know, what does that mean if it is true that you induce platinum resistance with the use of a PARP inhibitor, particularly platinum-sensitive maintenance? Yeah, I think that's one of the most important questions that we need to really understand. Uh, and we don't have great data yet. We need the data from frontline, number one. So we have sort of exploratory data in the solo two, really from solo two, uh, where Fresnel et al. Um, did a, an unbalanced, it was not company supported, it was an unbalanced sort of a look at patients on solo two, who you remember, got PARP until they progressed. Yeah. The progressed on a PARP and then went on to receive platinum, they showed a seven versus 14 months progression-free survival in the Olapra versus placebo arm. Uh, and then you showed um, actually Stephanie Wethington's work, Dr. Wethington's work, which was ATR Olaparib in that same population, mainly who had progressed on a PARP and the, the median survival is about seven months. So there's this question of if you progress on a PARP, there are overlapping resistance mechanisms with platinum exactly. that may make you less likely to respond. So that brings our earlier discussion more into focus that you, if you can, you really should stop. Because I think if you stop the PARP, you get the benefit from the PARP and you stop the PARP and hopefully they don't recur. We'll see in solo one, most others will recur, but if they don't recur for two years or three years, are they, do they have a negative impact on platinum? We don't know, but hopefully we'll get that subsequent data from Solo One and Prima and Paula. It'll all be exploratory, but cumulatively it should give us a sense. I am worried about that. I'm not gonna lie. I know. So then this last question, um, I think Jess, you were a high enroller in Innovate, right? Tell us about these tumor treating fields and what your experience has been with that. Is the it tolerable? I mean, there's some skin reactions, right? Right, exactly. So what we saw is early on, um, as as evidence from prior prior uh, prior data, prior studies, is that patients had to have algorithms. You know, if they saw um, rashes related to the devices that they wore on the front and sides, 
of their abdomen, um, in general, you could mitigate those. Okay. Moving, moving the arrays around, um, you know, utilizing steroids and topical uh, creams as needed, taking a break, you know, perhaps we needed to alter the time that patients were wearing those arrays on their abdomen. Um, uh, many of those could be mitigated. And then it also required a substantial amount of counseling. And so one thing I noticed in my office is having counseling and counseling early, being there with your patients, helping them understand, you know, trying to get them through. Uh, because the data, you know, um, this could be completely innovative and uh, yeah. excellent for these patients. Well, I appreciate both of your participations today. I appreciate your commitment to clinical trials. I appreciate the audience for sticking with us here. Well, thank you and so long for now. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.